It's Behind the Bots Time! From the NHRL studios in Norwalk, Connecticut, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Ripperoni Captain Anna Zickle... Anna Zickle... It's not even a hard one. Can you just write it phonetically? <laughs> that is phonetic. All right. It's super, super phonetic. And it's it's more, not more. Just. <laughs> Burn. And today on the podcast, Chris kills Kyle. <laughs> and today on the podcast, our interview with Ripperoni captain Anna Zolnikoff and driver Fred Moore. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have three news items for you today. First up, catch live robot combat this weekend in Las Vegas and Houston. In Houston, they'll be fighting fairy weights and ant weights and beetles at Electronic Parts Outlet this Saturday. In Las Vegas, it'll be somewhat spicier competition held outside the Anime Gear Guru store, where we'll hear the team behind Jackpot might be arriving in full cosplay outfits. Ooh, that could be exciting. Sin City Street Fights follows an interesting competition format that I really like. You get three poker chips at the start of the competition and can challenge any other builder to to a fight where you get, get to bet one or more chips. No brackets, casual and friendly. If you lose your chips, you're out. And the winner is decided by who has the most chips at the end of the night. Check out the details about these competitions and more at robotcombatevents.com. I'm all in. (laughs) It's all in. Uh, Speaking of Las Vegas, we now have official confirmation. BattleBots will return to Discovery Channel on Thursday, January 5th. In the press release, Discovery Channel said, quote, For the first time, all teams will complete a predetermined four-fight qualifying season. Also, for the first time, all teams' full fight schedules will be released prior to the start of the World Championship 7 qualifying rounds. This format change for BattleBots, which had previously built the qualifying matchup just hours before each filming session. Hmm. Yes, this is quite the change, isn't it? And finally, Scorpio's co-captains Zach Lytle and Diana Tarlson are out with a brand new interview this week with BattleBots judge and former competitor Lisa Winter, who reveals an incredibly delightful fact. She has at least nine ladybug shells stashed away at home from her bots Tentamushi and Megatento. It's a great interview. We highly recommend checking it out. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our interview with Anna and Fred. This week on the podcast, we have two very special guests. Ripperoni Captain Anna Zolnikoff and Ripperoni Driver Fred Moore. Ripperoni started its life as a heavy hitting three pounder built by Austin Brown, then became a 30 pounder that competed at NHRL and Motorama. The bot performed so well at NHRL that it earned its spot at the 2022 NHRL World Championship being held in two weeks in Norwalk, Connecticut. This pizza themed vertical disc spinner has a neat little innovation a counter-rotating flywheel that is designed to fight gyroscopic forces when the bot turns. Just like its fellow Team Omega sister bot, Starchild, Ripperoni has impeccable theming and an incredible merch department. 
This is a buy you're going to fall in love with this season. I guarantee it. We're looking forward to learning more about pizza, robots, and cults in the hours ahead. So welcome to the show, Anna and Fred. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, guys. <laughs> All right, so when we have uh, when we have multiple guests on the show, what we like to do is have you guys introduce each other um, because you guys know each other better than we know you. So let's go ahead and start with you, Anna. Anna, can you tell us about Fred Moore? Who's Fred Moore? How did you meet this guy? What does he do on the team? And what does he just do in life? Sure. Uh, Fred Moore is a longtime BattleBot veteran. Uh, he graduated from MIT. He built Road Rash originally and then was the driver of Valkyrie for many, many years. And now we're really excited to have him as the driver for Ripperoni. Um, Fred is very skilled at all sorts of mechanical and electrical engineering tasks. Uh, he's always down to help wherever he can and is a real jack of all trades on our team. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so Fred, who is Anna? How do you know her? What does she do on the team? What does she do in life? I think I met Anna at one of the infamous pre-Omega Omega pool parties that we were having during the 2021 season, uh, where she and some of the other uh, Uppercut team members came over to hang out and party with P1 and Valkyrie. And we got to talking and I realized, whoa, this is a incredibly talented welder, fabricator, robot designer, an engineer who really knows her stuff. And she's got a lot of really good ideas, especially when it comes to what toppings to put on pizza, uh, which is namely pineapple, which we, we can get into a little bit later. Sure. But as <laughs> you know, that party started to devolve into forming its own little team. Uh, we all started running around with a lot of ideas and it was fantastic watching Anna take this idea that she really developed up from the original three pound concept and then just take it and just morph it into her own and just drive it all the way across the finish line to get to Motorama that year and then have a very successful year at NHRL. So it's wonderful seeing her project management ability when it comes to something that small and that it really, really scaled up when it came to the 250 pounder. Uh, in her free time, she likes to look at pictures of frogs. <laughs> That's correct. I love that. Um, all right. So, Anna, we'll get started with you. How did you get into combat robotics? Like, what was the beginning of your journey in this sport? Um, so, actually, uh, Austin Brown and I, who is a teammate on Ripperoni now and also previously Uppercut, uh, we met in high school and we started doing BattleBots there. Um, we competed in Motorama, I believe, 2012, uh, a very, very long, t 10 years ago, right? Um, so, yeah, we, we were in a high school robotics club at the time. We also competed in first robotics together and then just stayed friends over the years. Um, and then he got recruited to the uppercut team at MIT and he brought me with him and uh, we worked there. Uh, that's awesome. Wow. You've been doing this for a very long time. Um, so, Fred, how did you get started in this crazy sport? What, what was your origin story, your supervillain origin story, as it were? Uh, man, I, I think it was like 24. 14 or something. Uh, I was working a dead end job at a startup like um, that tends to be a habit of mine. And I was just scrolling through a lot of blogs and just reading them all in my free time. And I discovered Charles Guan's blog and discovered, oh, 
you know that BattleBots thing that I loved watching as a kid and, you know, never really got any closure on? That still exists. There's amateur competitions. They're happening. And there's one that's coming up in a couple of months. So from there, it was just like throwing myself into just a fit of trying to slap together uh, my first ever robot, which is RMR, which I believe to this day is one of the worst ranked Beetleweights of all time with a historic record of zero and 15. <laughs> and I really should have learned better at some point, And I don't know why I didn't. But anyways, a little bit of that, a little bit of hanging around the uh, MIT Electronics Research Society and hanging around Charles and friends got me in contact with them right around the same time that they were building the original overhaul. And that's when I became super good friends with Mr. Dane Kutron. And I helped a lot of the original overhaul for the first ABC season get across the um, get across the hump. Did a lot of machining for them. I don't know if you've ever done two-person machining on a Bridgeport where one person runs the Y-axis and the other runs the X, but it's a very efficient way to get parts made in no time at all. Uh, no, no promises on the accuracy of them. But <laughs> from there, it was just the sky's the limit and um, started making a lot better robots after that, including Gracious Pipe Professionalism, which... I believe should be a fan favorite because it's just a katana wielding bunch of pipe fittings. And then a couple others that people know about before getting into Road Rash and Road Rash didn't go great. And then got into Valkyrie with Leanne and Alex. And now it's uh, on to pizza time. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so as you guys both mentioned, you were on, you know, teams in BattleBots already. Uh, Fred on Valkyrie um, and Road Rash on Anna. You were on Uppercut. Um, so why start this new team this season? I know that, the this seems to, to center around, uh, perhaps a grocery store and a pool party, but I'm not exactly sure why this new team got started. So could you guys kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, the captain of Uppercut and the captain of Valkyrie actually moved away from the East coast. And those of us who really like to work on hardware really wanted to continue doing that. And it's really hard to do that when the robot is on the opposite side of the country. So that's kind of where we we started. We were all at a pool party. We knew that like next season was probably not going to be the same for both teams. And we decided that those of us who live in Boston should form our own venture and all stay local and all start working on our own project where we can all uh, do design reviews for each other, um, help each other with different ideas and really pack the team with a lot of talent. Nice. I also don't want to call it like boredom, but at the same time, we both, we had spent a lot of time, like Uppercut's been around for two years, two very, three, years, three yeah. very successful years. Valkyrie's been around for ver three very successful years, four years now. Um, and I think there was just a general desire on a lot of both of these teams to just go off and make something new and just sort of branch out and try some crazy stuff. So that's something that we really wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So um, you guys both live. Uh, so we're going to go and talk about designing Ripperoni. Um, so as you'd said, Ripperoni was originally a three pounder built by Austin Brown, one of your teammates. Um, so what was the design inspiration for that? And what of that three pounder has kind of transitioned along the line of Ripperonis and little rips into what you now have? <laughs> 
the, the two main concepts of Ripperoni that started with Austin Brown that we still preserve today is the asymmetry and the UHMW chassis. So Austin started the asymmetry concept because he only had one weapon running the motor and he just decided to put it on one side and put the hoop a little bit over instead of having it in the center to make space for that weapon motor. Um, and that is exactly how we built the 30 pound Ripperoni and then the 250 pound Ripperoni. Unlike Uppercut, which had two... Well, there's that third concept that you also mentioned, which is the hoop, which I feel is one of the central concepts of Ripperoni. Most of every version of Ripperoni is just designed starting with the hoop, and then you just build the robot around that. That's true. The the disc-shaped weapon, which we call the hoop, because we try to keep uh, all of the weight as close to the edges as possible to increase the moment of inertia... Um, It's a weapon that creates a lot of gyroscopic precession in the robot because of this high moment of inertia, and it makes it really difficult to drive. But the longer and wider your robot it is, the better. And um, yeah, that was the original concept, was a a big hoop weapon because it is the most powerful and keep the rest of the body low to the ground and machine it out of plastic to make design for manufacturing a little bit easier so that you can um, just make this one big billet piece and not have to bolt anything together, really. Uh, that's what stuck. Huh. I like that. Uh, how did you guys come up with the name Ripperoni? Um, Austin came up with, that was the original three pound name. Um, and I think that's just like an exclamation of something you say when something goes wrong and you just go, ah, oh, Ripperoni, like <laughs> R.I.P., in peace. It was real frequent around the uh, MIT Electronics Research Society of if you were ever doing machining on something and you blew up an end mill or had to scrap a part or blew up a battery or a motor controller, it's just Austin or Michael Detienne would just look at you and say, oh, Ripperoni. <laughs> but original Ripperoni did not have a theme. Um, I, I brought the pizza theme. I worked at a pizza place in high school. Uh, pizza's very close to my heart. And I felt like that was the only theme worthy of a robot with such a name. Yeah, I aimed that. Um, all right. So how did this thing perform kind of once, you know, at the three pound level? And then how did it perform once you scaled it up for Motorama and NHRL? So for the three pounder, um, I, w- I was hosting that event. And for I, I'm used to most miters people to show up with a robot that they made the night before. And then sometimes it works incredibly well. And then sometimes it goes oh and four and then it's just out of the tournament. Uh, but Austin just like through me and magic alone danced and flew all around the arena all the way to a first place finish for something that he spent less than two days on. So that was a very, very good start. And then I don't think he ever ran the robot again, period. It was just one of those. Correct. Quick little overnight builds that was a one event robot back in the days when a lot of people would just make one event robots as a joke. He did fantastic with it and then immediately retired. Nice. Nice. Um, And then once it was scaled up to the 30 pounds, um, you know, what changes did you guys make for that 30 pound design and how did it perform once you kind of got into the NHRL Motorama 30 pound divisions? So both the three-pound Ripperoni and Uppercut and very similar weapon uh, robots with a really big weapon like that uh, have issues driving. And basically, um, as we were working on Uppercut, we were thinking, what could we do to a robot like this to make it drive better? And that's where we thought of the counter-rotating flywheel. 
So originally we built three 30 pound ripperoni as a test bed to try this flywheel concept, but we actually were never able to get the small flywheel to work. We just continuously blew up speed controllers and we physically built it, but we couldn't find a way to get it spun up to speed um, for what we needed to perform. So I just ran the robot without the flywheel and with extra armor, I had a great time. Um, and we decided that what we needed to make the flywheel concept work was more weight and to bring it to a 250 pound level so that we had a little bit more to play with. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's awesome. That is fantastic. And then how did it perform? I mean, like, did it do well at its competitions? Were you satisfied with its performance? Yeah, it did pretty well at uh, both Motorama and NHRL. Uh, it's a really fun robot to watch. It's a real 50-50 shot. Either you land that really awesome kill or you explode immediately. Um, we play it really on the line. Everything's designed really to the limits of the technology that we have. Um, but it's it's a lot of fun. And when it gets that real big hit, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. Um. So when did you guys decide you wanted to apply to BattleBots? Um, pretty much, I would say maybe December of last year, uh, around the same time that we thought about building 30-pound Ripperoni. Uh, we were always building the 30-pounder with the 250-pounder in mind. We wanted to try out the concepts to see if it would work, to see if the flywheel idea had teeth, which was inconclusive at the 30 pound level, but we, after our performance at Motorama, we decided that the idea to core was good enough to go for it. We had about five different concepts going around all at the same time. Um, and we really wanted to use Motorama and NHRL as the proving ground for, you know, seeing what actually has merit and what doesn't. And I, I, I don't think I'll spoil what other ideas we were having, but you can look at the list of robots to have a couple of ideas. Strong four made a strong appearance. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, what was the application process like? Yeah, I I did do we did do a traditional application just like everybody else. Um, you know, I, I filled out the sheet. We attached all the renders. Like we this wasn't you know we didn't get in based on a, a phone call. Like we we did all the work. Um, we showed them. We presented. Um, 30 pound ripperoni. Uh, we talked about, you know, it's, it's record. Nice. Um, and eventually they approved the pizza bot. Um, but you know, one thing that was tough is that we heard that when the season was announced, uh, there was only going to be 50 robots on the field and it used to be around 70. So that's a lot of spots that were getting cut. And we knew that they were not going to take um, very many rookies, if any rookies at all. So it was a really stressful few months for us. And I think that we got the call that we were in at like one of the last possible times. We got it in really, really late July, almost August. Um, so when we when we finally got in, uh, our build season was really short. It was really just two months to design the robot from scratch, build it from scratch, and put it in the crate by early October. Like it was, it was pretty crazy. So, um, we, we were definitely really glad that we got that call, but it was, we were stressed for, for a few months there. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, so real quickly, the 250 pound version of Ripperoni, uh, so we already talked about how the flywheel is definitely different from the 30 pound version. Were there any other major design changes that you guys kind of went with on this version based off of your experience with the 30 pounders? 
Yeah, the only other major difference that you can see from just looking at the robot is that that right side is tilted at about a 45 degree angle. Um, and we did that to give the weapon more exposure. So on one, like now you only need to armor that one left side and anything that's coming from the right side, any forklets, any wedges, which we know those are really popular in the game right now, um, they're just going to get the hoop. So that was a small change that we made from the 30 pounder, where on the 30 pounder, both sides are still flat on the ground. And thus I have to armor both sides. Wow. Yeah. Makes sense. But other than that, it's actually, uh, it's almost, uh, you know, one-to-one scale. Just everything was doubled in size. Pretty much the footprint is about two and a half times. The weapon is double the diameter. Everything just kind of the thickness is double the thickness of the billet UHMW that the whole body is machined out of. Um, everything scaled really well. Yeah, that's the glory of the 30-pounders. They scale up pretty, pretty well. I think it's a little more asymmetric, which is also very fun. It is really cool looking. It is really cool looking. All right, I'm going to pass you over to my buddy Chris, who's got some uh, fan questions for you. All right, folks, I'm going to open up with a great question from Mitchell from Team Stamina, which the rumor mill tells me... Uh, Team Stamina is building a heavyweight, or so I hear. Don't know. Can't confirm. Can't deny. Uh, Mitchell wants to know, what did you learn from running the 30-pound bot that helped you with the heavyweight? The main thing that we really liked about the 30-pound bot was the frame construction. So using plastic as armor was fantastic. Instead of absorbing that energy, pieces of the plastic would just get machined away. And then I would take off a cheek piece, bolt on a new one, and good to go for the next fight. Um, Having the steel frame give it structure with the UHMW pods, that was something that we 100% wanted to keep. Um, The other thing that we learned with the 30-pounder was how it self-writes. Ripperoni doesn't have a designated self-writing mechanism. Its self-writing is just to hit the weapon against the floor or uh, use its geometry to be able to turn and drive itself over. So that was something that we also really wanted to preserve with the 250 pounder. It's not only easier to not have to worry about this extra self-writing mechanism, but it's a lot of fun to watch it do flips and somersaults all over the arena and then land right on its feet. Mitchell goes on to ask, uh, what challenges did you face scaling up the design? Quite a bit, (laughs) starting with the building a brand new weapon motor from scratch, which uh, is a lot of excitement. But even then, the drive systems are completely different. Um, There's a big challenge that we put on ourselves this year of maintaining a modular drive system and uh, drive battery system with our sister team, Starchild, which, you know, on one hand, that picks all of our components ahead of us or for us ahead of time. But on the other hand, like you really have to design around those parts when you're putting them into your robot. Uh, But it really paid off in the end because you do have two robots worth of spares that you can draw from once you start losing them. Uh, There were definitely a lot of machining and sourcing issues that were really fun to sort out, Uh, especially when it came to scaling up those plastic parts on the 30 pounder. They're only like two inches thick on Yeah, they're about two and a half inches thick on the 30 pounder, which if you get an end mill with a two inch throw, you can still machine on machines that you would find in a standard machine shop at a university or um, 
you know, at, at our jobs. But the UHMW pods for Ripperoni, the big one, are made of a five inch UHMW. And that is much more difficult to machine. Um, it was a huge cost driver and it was really difficult for us to get those made without any warping that happens due to the internal stresses in the plastic. Or to just get the material sourced. The material sourcing was terrible for it. Yeah, I've never seen UHMW that thick before. Where would you even where would you even get that? Yes. <laughs> um, it is technically the thickest size that McMaster sells. That's why we went with the five inch. But at the time that we were going to buy it, McMaster actually stopped selling it. Um, I think it might be back now, but we had some um, real plastic online dot com type of sources to to find it. Uh, also cancerous in the state of California. For sure. I mean, they make cutting boards out of this material. Honestly, if something was going to not cause cancer in the battle bot, my money's on the UHMW. Not <laughs> touche. It just contributes to the microplastics in your blood. <laughs> Except I think yeah, those are inert. These are macroplastics. <laughs> <laughs> we are just going to be plastic monsters in 30 years. I love it. Ryan Hunter, who runs Harvester at NHRL, wants to know, without breaking your NDA, do you think that the design choices that you made for Ripperoni uh, that made Ripperoni un- unique among the field, the flywheel, the asymmetricality, are the new meta? Why or why not? Yes. No more questions. <laughs> go big or go home. I like go big and go home. Yeah. I think we had two objectives this year uh, was number one, we wanted to see how many rules would get made about us after the season. Um, and uh, I, I won't spoil it on how many did get made. And then the other, the other objective was to see how many people were going to try to copy the various stuff that we threw into Ripperoni. And I think we're both very confident that there are going to be a couple of copycats next season. And no hard feelings there. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Um, but we threw everything we had into this design, all of our crazy ideas. We figured we don't have, you know, several years to try them each in isolation. We got to just slap it all in at once. Um, so that's why that's why we did everything all together, just to get as much data as soon as possible and then leave ourselves the opportunity to redesign later and add features or take them out as we see fit. Ryan um, says the flywheel is really interesting. Can you tell us exactly how it works? Yes, you spin very, very fast. So you have the um, the mass of the hoop spinning in one direction, and I'm sure everybody's seen uh, vertical spinners of this size kind of lift a, li- a wheel when they turn, like it looks like a dog is peeing. Um, this is the same experiment as when you hold a bicycle wheel on a swivel chair and you move it, the swivel chair turns around. Um, so basically, you need to counteract that gyroscopic precession, and you can do that by trying to add magnets, which add a lot of weight and uh, pull your wheel on the opposite side towards the ground, or you can add a second mass that's spinning in the opposite direction. And since mom- uh, momentum is mv, if you're scaling down the mass, you have to scale up the velocity. So the flywheel is about a quarter of the weight, and it spins four times as fast. Northeastern University Combat Robotics team member Alex Pick, who runs the Beetleweight Zane at NHRL, has two has a two parter. Uh, the first, uh, what does pain taste like? Oh, uh, that's right. <laughs> I was wondering what the reference was to, but I remember we we put it on our um, 
on our topping checklist on the front of Ripperoni, which is meant to look like a pizza box. Um, what does pain taste like? I mean, are you giving it or receiving it? This is an important <laughs> part of what does pain taste like. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a family show. You just asked me what pain tastes like, and you're expecting? I didn't. I didn't. A young gentleman from Northeastern University asked you. I don't know. I'll say I, pain tastes metallic. I would say pain tastes pretty metallic. I'm not sure you want it on your pizza, but we're serving it anyway. Pain tastes like a pizza that doesn't have pineapple on it. <laughs> so I, I love pineapple on pizza, but I will say it is uh, a, a dual favorite topping. I also love mushrooms on pizza. And I, I have said that in an interview before, so I have to stay true. It's <laughs> mushrooms and pineapple. Maybe not together, but they're both my favorite. Alex also goes on to ask, can you go into more detail on the flywheel's materials? Um, and, uh, and can you give it some more information about how it was, uh, how it spun up? Um, oh, this is a fun one. Uh, I'll start with the materials question. Um, we originally made it out of mild steel because we wanted to keep costs down, but we still needed something with a lot of weight. And actually in testing, we spun it so fast that the steel started to deform. So we had to redesign our flywheel halfway through the season um, to make it be able to withstand the acceleration we were putting it under. And then we went... That was hardly halfway through the season. That was designing it the week before shit. Okay, two... Yes, Fred's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, we... Which I guess was halfway. It was halfway before we actually had to... Yeah, the flywheels met us there. Um, we drop shipped the flywheels directly from our machining supplier to the competition. But um, after the redesign, we went with 4130. Um, and then we had a couple uh, different designs of the internals. Um, but some things that we found were really important were balance and uh, just strength. So um, actually, two of our flywheels, we got professionally balanced. So they ground out pieces of the flywheel to get it to... Um, you know, be perfectly on axis. And then we had another design that had like spokes on the inside that were keeping the outside portions tucked in or um, keep them from flying out as they sort of did in our test. Like there are a lot of options with exotic flywheel energy storages of going for like carbon fiber, super materials and all this other stuff. But what they don't really tell you about carbon fiber is it, Number one, it's not an isotropic material, so you can't fully predict what it's going to do. And number two, when it does something that you don't predict it to do, it explodes very violently. And when that's an airplane wing, that's a pretty dangerous thing because that sends knives flying everywhere. But when it's a very, very fast spinning flywheel with a lot of kilojoules of energy, that's just a bomb and not one that we were looking forward to making. So... Keeping it with steel, especially like unhardened and normalized stuff, meant that the failure mode was going to be through deformation, which was, you know, a relatively mild and cool failure mode, even though it was just a catastrophic amount of energy deciding to uh, exert itself in an unexpected way. That is so cool. All right. I have a series of questions here from Joe from Team Don't Blow Yourself Up, who's at the fifth season. He Appropriate. Has, yeah. So he has a series of questions. Uh, the first of being, um, I'm interested to hear about the control of the counter gyro fly reel 
Does it track the speed of the weapon automatically? Are there situations where you may initially desync the two flywheels in order to enable gyro maneuvering? And did BattleBots permit you to go above the tip speed limit on the enclosure uh, enclosed flywheel to bring the weight down? Um, y- yes, well, because the flywheel is enclosed, uh, it does not have to obey by tip speed limits. There is no part of it that's sticking out. There's also no real tip because it is a perfectly circular flywheel. Um, there's nothing, there's no tooth on there. There's nothing that would, um, hit something the way that a weapon would, um, as for what was the other question? So are you saying then inside the enclosure, it's basically like a pizza wheel cutter? Yeah. That's what we kind of wanted it to look like. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Is there like, is there a secret pizza peel hidden somewhere in the bot too? Like the big wooden paddle. Uh, it comes out on a pizza peel. <laughs> Uh, uh, so the other uh, question that he had, which was like a four part first question was, are there situations where you may want to intentionally desync the two flywheels to enable gyro maneuvering? I will say yes. Oh, so they are completely isolated systems. Um, yeah, we kept them completely isolated because we didn't want, like with both systems being so new, we didn't want uh, one system to take out the other if there was a failure. So, um, the only thing they share is batteries, completely different motors, completely different controllers, uh, different sticks on the throttle or on the controller. But yes, there are absolutely situations where we want one of them to spin and not the other. Joe goes on to ask, how has Ripperoni's use of IPM technology evolved from uppercut with the new build and voltage rules? I'm Well, that, that, that's it, yeah. is the voltage rule. <laughs> Austin basically started completely from scratch. Uh, he realized that I simple, simple maths of just like V equals IR. Is anybody scared of that equation? Um, and like voltage is equal to your current that you draw times the resistance. Now, the other follow up to that is that P equals IV power is equal to your current times your voltage. Now, the elites don't want you to know this, but. For a given amount of power, if you increase the voltage, you decrease the amount of current proportionally. However, when you plug those two equations into each other to try to find out where your power losses are coming from, you actually find that your losses in efficiency are a function of the square of the current. Going down to a lower voltage means a catastrophically increased current, and a catastrophically increased current is a lot less efficient. So you're going to have a much less efficient motor than you would at the higher voltages, which is really unfortunate. So Austin did a very, very good redesign from scratch of these sort of IPMs, which are intended for high voltage applications to make one work within the rules, uh, really bulking up the thermal mass and the transistors on it in order to survive that additional current load and that loss of efficiency. Joe goes on to ask, uh, how did a racetrack end up becoming your team's title sponsor? So uh, that, that, that's another beautiful thing about having a big team with two robots is that a lot of people can be at the right place at the right time in order to get things done for us. So for instance, I was fun employed during most of the builds. So I was able to go drive down to Baltimore to pick up materials for Starchild. But one of the beautiful things that happened was uh, we had... The day before, discovered that our original planned sponsor for Ripperoni was dropping out. And Brandon was taking P1 to a 
Hudson family day event or something, just a cute little small business fair um, in his hometown where most of Star Child was built and where we ostensibly have our headquarters. And we went to a couple of these, uh, but he did the vast majority of legwork on them. And he was just at one of them, hanging out, meeting and greeting fans, shaking hands. And this guy just comes up to him and says, hey, can I sponsor your robot? And he says, no, I already have a sponsor, but I do know a robot that does need a sponsor. It turns out that guy was the owner of the Hudson Speedway, and he was extremely interested in uh, very graciously sponsoring us. Uh, and by the way, if any of y'all live in New England, I highly recommend going by Hudson Speedway, the family-friendly raceway. It is a tiny little tight track. But they pack so much action into it that it really gives Ripperoni a run for its money. And they let us come up there um, after he finished building the robot to do some testing. And Ripperoni got to knock around some big tires and oil barrels around their parking lot. Um which was a really great way to see what it would do uh, before we put it in the crate. Probably still not the craziest thing that's happened in that parking lot. Oh, goodness, no. Those guys <laughs> have seen a lot of danger. <laughs> um, so uh, Joe wraps up by saying, finally, uh, thank you, Fred, for appreciating my pineapple belongs on pizza, so to counter gyro flywheels sign at BattleBots filming. Oh, we saw that. That was fantastic. We have been laughing about it since. <laughs> All right. So serial killer builder Kokoda Mane wants to know, what was uh, the reason for making the body of the bot asymmetrical? And was there an advantage uh, that it offered? Yes. Yeah, so the reason that we did it was because we were moving to just one weapon motor. We wanted it to be really close to its batteries to keep all the wire paths short. And that's just a really big volume. So in order to keep those two components together, um, you have to shift the weapon over to one side. Uh, the other strategy would be to break up the battery pack and to have wires going across behind the weapon. But that's a really sensitive area, and we didn't want to be debugging something that's stuffed so deep in the steel frame. So weapon motor, weapon batteries, flywheel are all together in one neat little package, and then the weapon sits off next to that. Um, then the rest of the comp components were placed around it. You have a drive gearbox on either side uses the same size of drive motor in basically the same orientation. Uh, the only difference between the two sides with the two different wheels is the sprocket size on the chain drive inside of the robot itself. Um, the motors are driven exactly the same. And then the two different tires because one side is lifted. So really it stems from keeping components together and having everything be easy to work on. That's what drove the asymmetry. There were also a couple other advantages we noticed, um, especially, well, one of the biggest ones was with the design and the design considerations. I felt it was very liberating to just sort of design around the parts that you had in the space that you had, rather than having to balance them all uh, out to either side. So just being able to grow things to be the exact size and shape that they needed to be was really fun and like a really interesting way of designing a robot. Another interesting thing that we found once we started 3D printing a few models of it was with your completely asymmetric design, you've got a completely different performance uh, whenever you get into a thinged position. So a lot of these really long robots can get stuck on their heads with one uh, wheel sticking all the way out. But in our case, with the short side, it's incredibly difficult to get stuck on the short side. So all we had to worry about mitigating was getting stuck on the long side. 
All right. Um, so I am going to take over here for Chris and get into some more fan questions. I just want to say on the record that Ripperoni was the bot I was most excited, uh, most you know, rookie bot I should say that I was most excited to see. Um, and I I can't wait to see how the season goes for you. And I know um, a lot of people are pumped for you too. But man, like uh, the more that I hear during this interview, like the more pumped I even am to learn about Ripperoni because I think it's just so brilliant and hearing you guys talk about it uh, in a very technical way is also very uh, interesting because these are a lot of concepts I'm not very familiar with, but you're doing a great job explaining them. So just wanted to say that. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. No, I I uh, could listen to you guys talk about uh, the the <laughs> – physics and uh you know the technology of uh combat robotics forever i think so um however we have other questions to get to uh and this one regards the hopes and dreams that you had going into battle bots so uh heading into the show you know your your rookie season how did you think the bot was going to perform i'm sure you know with a two-month build window there were probably uh, ebbs and flows and uh, peaks and valleys of, of your feelings there. Man, are the robot this complicated? We knew that failure was just one step away on so many different levels. Like any one of our systems uh, could have gone down. And with everything being so new, we were really on the lookout for every place that there could be a problem. Um we were really hoping that we could get like one good fight where we really sent someone to the ceiling. But uh, at the end of the day, we knew it would be a successful season if we proved that our concepts worked. So any one of our new concepts, like the IPM motor that was custom built for this robot, the asymmetry, the flywheel, we wanted to show that at least one of these ideas really had teeth. And to have a lot of fun. Rule, rule number one of Omega Team is to have fun. So, of course, we wanted to have a really good time. And with like a whimsical theme and a fun group of people, um, that was really our goal. Yeah, we really didn't want to win. We just wanted to show up and throw somebody into the ceiling. Uh, just seconding that stress of that build season, I don't think we had a full system test of every single part of the robot working until the day of our first fight, which uh, was very stressful. That is terrifying. I imagine uh, that would be a very stressful situation to go into. Um, but you said that you wanted to have fun at the end of the day. Uh, would you say that season, uh, your first season was fun? Did you have fun? We had a lot of fun. We had so much fun. I think we were able to have a lot of fun uh, because we picked this whimsical theme. Um, we never really worried about like looking cool. We just went out there and threw dough at each other it was fantastic <laughs> i won't give any spoilers but you guys had um really fantastic props for your walkouts like some things that i i, I imagine were difficult to source um so yeah uh keep a lookout uh audience you know when when you're watching because the they they really went all out you're in for a treat always bet on pizza <laughs> Um, so, uh, more, more questions here about your, your experience. Um, what can you tell us about the team Omega mansion? Uh, we actually had, uh, Tony and, um, Brandon and Amanda from star child on last time. And they were telling us a little bit about your, uh, place out in the desert. Uh, but how, how was that for you? That experience? 
that was so fun. I mean, we just have such a big team with with both teams being kind of combined and part of one umbrella. We all wanted to stay together. So there weren't really many options for Airbnbs that house that many people. And the best option we could find was something that was pretty much, yeah, on the edge of the desert. Um, we were right up against the cliffs. Like we could, you open your window and it's cliffs right there. Um, it was it was really beautiful, a lot of fun, a little bit of a drive to the venue, but we had a great time all hanging out together and sitting in the hot, quote unquote, tub, lukewarm tub. Never really got that hot. It was lukewarm. <laughs> it was lukewarm. What are the real big advantages of having a big team mansion like that is just the ability to socialize as your team. If you're going to the official builder hotel, sure, you get to hang out with all the other teams and all the other builders, but you don't really get a chance to sit there and decompress and talk about your feelings and how your day went all while your mom, <clears throat> I mean, uh, well, Spocky is cooking eggs and like, it was really rewarding to be able to just sit down with either of the teams around the kitchen table or the hot tub, drinking beer and just going over what happened, what are we going to do to fix it? How can we just make tomorrow better rather than just everybody marching up to their rooms and being antisocial for a night? And that was really critical for good teamwork among us. I love that. I love that. Um, all right. So this is a question here from our very own Luke. Uh, how was it being pitted next to the greatest NHRL teams of all time, namely Sawblaze and Shred It Bro? Famously, Luke is on Shred It Bro, so I think he may be biased here. Uh, it's really awesome seeing other robots from NHRL at Big Battle Bots. Um, like, it, this is all one community, and we're always rooting for each other. Um, you know, if we can't win, we always hope that it's going to be somebody else who's been working at this just as hard as we were. Um, and we know that um, those teams have built really great subscales and we're rooting for them as well. It's definitely a great experience being around people that you've competed with because it can really make you feel comfortable with it. I mean, I've been losing to Jameson for uh, nearly a decade now, so it's been pretty good to just show up to an event and know he's there. And like at the very least, no matter what else happens, I'm going to lose to him again, which is, you know, great. I give him a little bit more a run for his money every time, but one of these times. But even then, just hanging out with the Shredded Bro team, uh, Jeremy DeGuzman and I go way back, all the way to college together. Um, and just being surrounded with a lot of comfortable people that you know can really make a stressful situation, you know, a lot more enjoyable and entertaining. I love that. I'll second that. I mean, this was obviously, you know, my first year being at BattleBots and I'm not, uh, you know, quote unquote, a technical person. So I had a lot of like, imposter syndrome like what am I even doing here and why did they invite me but seeing so many people from NHRL it made it feel a lot more like a you know big community of, of people that I know and everyone's so welcoming and that was a that was really cool um so all right let's get to the bottom of it is Team Omega a cult or what Team Omega is not a cult Team Omega is also not a frat that is all we have to say about the matter. I love that there's now an addendum. <laughs> it used to just be Team Omega is not a cult, and now we, we have had to add on the also not a frat. I feel like that part is new. It's a new revelation, perhaps, but uh, it, it was definitely codified at some point. I don't remember what point, but we were never a cult and we were never a frat. We've made that much clear. 
Now, a multi-level marketing scheme, that, that is to be decided, um, and we'll let the FTC chime in on that. <laughs> I will buy whatever you're selling, so uh, count me in as your downline. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is if you get in early, all of the money funnels up to you. <laughs> yeah, It's pizza-shaped. It's not a pyramid scheme. It's not a it's, it's a not pizza a pyramid. Scheme. It's a pizza scheme. That totally checks out. It makes complete sense to me. I have no follow-up questions and I'm in. Perfect. Um yeah. All right. So uh we have a uh question here from NHRL fan VV Tribal, uh who has just a very simple question for you, Fred. Uh so Fred, when is 250 pound marathon? Uh it already happened and it's called Minotaur. Ooh. All right, that's fair. (laughs) There are some geometry differences, but when I was designing um, Marathon back in 2017 with Alex Satori, the plan was to just be a shameless, shameless Minotaur ripoff. I mean, hey, it's working out pretty well for you and Minotaur, so. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. They've got over a decade (laughs) of winning behind them, and that's very difficult to argue with. Yeah. All right, so we are now in the unusual question portion of our uh, of our interview, and I feel like for you both, we have maybe more than our fair share. So uh, buckle in. <laughs> um, so the first is from Team Shredit team member who you said you go way back with Remy de Guzman, uh, who also runs Wicked Wedge at NHRL. Uh, he has two questions. The first: What was the mustache budget? Any other mustache-related antics that you can share? Uh, mustache budget was probably $15 on Amazon, and it did, it went way further than I thought it could. Um, I think my favorite mustache anecdote is standing behind stage before a fight and in an unrelated fight for the night, we had uh, the Cooper brothers with Quantum show up right behind us. And they had all of their kids and all of their, they have a lot of kids. There's like five or six of them. And they were running around being, you know, kids. And one of them was very, very offended by my mustache, insisting that it was fake. And I can't believe that she would make this accusation. I worked very hard on that mustache. Um, So hard, in fact, that I had a bunch of extras, which I promptly promised her and, you know, all of her brothers and sisters and cousins, that they could all have mustaches. And um, I, I started doing this in secret without the parent or the parents seeing their kids of just went into my mustache stash and then like grabbed a big handful of them and started distributing them to all the children who wanted to just peel them off and smack them on immediately right before this very serious British team went into this very serious British fight. And, uh, Needless to say, once they discovered the great mustache conspiracy, they were horrified. (laughs) But there is a picture out there of the vast majority of the Cooper children wearing mustaches. And I think it's one of my favorites that I've ever seen. (laughs) No children were harmed in the making of this anecdote. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, I love that. I mean, who doesn't love a good mustache uh, antic. Um, all right. So kind of following up on that, how did the theming for Ripperoni come about? Uh, and I know you, you mentioned that, you know, you were the one behind that. Uh, what was your favorite aspect or prop that you had at filming? The theming was all Tony. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I told Tony the theme is pizza. And next day in my inbox, I had all the vinyls laid out, all our logos. Um, he designed the jackets, the shirts, everything. Um, I just said the word pizza and everything appeared. Um, it was fantastic. But I think my favorite is still just the robot. The robot looks so good and so striking from every angle. I love the big pizza weapon and how the rest of it looks like a box. Um, it, no prop can top how cute the robot is. I mean, I'm taking this call from a pizza placemat that Tony somehow sourced. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a picture just to prove this. But one of my workbenches in my basement is completely covered in pizza mats, which is insane. But my favorite prop besides the robot is uh, it's pretty redacted. And I think it's going to be everybody else's favorite prop, too, when they see it. I'll ask no more. Uh, but yeah, that's man. Tony is like, I feel like after this season, he's going to be the most in demand, like designer <laughs> for all of these teams, because what he was able to do for Ripperoni and Star Child is just like on a whole other level than I think teams have really you know, done before. It's it's just incredible. Both bots were just meticulous in their theming and and their look and feel. And it was really, really elevates the show, I think. Yeah. Robotsruinmylife.com. Check it out. I do want to shout out, we did have a couple of our other friends join the team, Laura Tang and Audrey Horst. Audrey and I go way back. Um, we just had them on as dedicated, hey, Please put this vinyl on. Please paint this thing. Please make this thing look pretty. And they did just such a fantastic job of just sprucing up the robots before every single fight, giving that them both that immaculate paint job and making them look all the way to the nines. And just being able to focus on that and just make the robots be as aesthetic as possible and be relatively open-minded about what that means um really put omega team in the place where we are now and well we're very excited about it yeah i now realized why everyone told me not to go with a white paint job for ripperoni uh it really just shows all the scuffs and all the chips and the fact that every fight it went in looking like a brand new robot that was fantastic uh, it was a lot of work to keep that robot looking shiny it really looked Brand new, like you would think that you had four, you know, brand new robots uh, for, for each match. So way to go to them. Um, all right. So huge team member and frequent NHRL judge Don Dorfler wants to know, Danger Fred slash Anna, do you foresee a greater demographic of Italians watching the show this season? I hope more people are watching the show this season all across the board. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I mean, everybody loves a pizza. Yeah, pizza crosses all cultural boundaries. I think uh, it's the true, the true unifier. Always bet on pizza. Never met a pizza I didn't like. <laughs> uh, all right, so we have a, a question from the other Dorfler brother, Joe, uh, who is also a huge team member and NHRL veteran. Um, Fred, as a successful Italian like yourself, <laughs> what are the steps to making a good pizza pie? <laughs> I mean, 
You can always go – a good start for any good pizza is just doing a homemade dough. And that's not that rough if you've got a food processor. I Just go into Binging with Babish. He's got plenty of wonderful tutorials for making a good pizza dough. I guess from there, letting your dough rest for the appropriate amount of time is really going to build up that gluten and that development. And not overworking it whenever you're trying to toss it, fold it, and over-saucing it. And then honestly, after you've got the dough figured out, as long as you're not combining weird toppings, I think you're going to end up with a pretty successful pizza. Uh, temperature is definitely a major concern in making a good pizza. You can't just use your standard oven in order to do it. You're going to either have to do dangerous tricks, which I won't elaborate on here, or a pizza stone or a dedicated pizza oven. You really need to get a lot of temperature into it. Cook it relatively quick just because it's such a thin piece, um, but without overcooking all of your toppings. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd say that the real secret to a good pizza is a nice hot pizza oven and figuring out how to do that. You also want the semolina flour to help it slide off of whatever uh, pizza peel, pizza stone you got going on. Uh, that also gives it a little bit of crunch at the bottom. I'm a big fan of using semolina to uh, instead of flour on the bottom. I've heard semolina be described as the ball bearings of flour. And unlike in <laughs> BattleBots, uh, ball bearings are totally allowed when making pizzas, just as long as they're edible ball bearings. So... Uh, really maximize that semolina there. I love these semolina tips. I'm going to throw my own pizza cooking uh, tip in here just because we're on the topic. The last thing you want to do, speaking of temperature, is just throw in your pizza stone, your baking steel, uh, whatever you're using, throwing it in as the uh, oven is preheating and think, you know, that's calling it a day. No, no, no. You want that pizza stone, your baking steel, whatever you've got going on in there in the oven preheating for like an hour. Because when you want that pizza dough to hit that whatever you're putting it on, it needs to be super duper hot. And just like 10 minutes while the oven is preheating is not enough. Yeah, strong agree there. Also, the San Marzano tomatoes for the sauce. You you can't go wrong with a San Marzano tomato. Um, just I like a chunky, just a rough pulse so that you still have big pieces in there. A um, little bit of basil, oregano, all you need. I love it, man. OK, now I'm hungry. Uh, very much so for pizza. All of this sounds phenomenal. Um, but believe it or not. We have another pizza question, this time from Ryan Hunter. What is the truest classic pizza order, the standard for determining how good a pizza place is? And Anna, I know you've worked at a pizza place, so you might have an answer for this. Uh, I like a, a basic cheese slice is how you're going to find out if that pizza is good. I personally really like mushrooms, and I don't think that uh, mushrooms get in the way of that. So if I were trying out a new pizza place, I would order either a cheese or or a mushroom slice. Other people I've heard really like pepperoni, but I find that the spiciness of that sometimes masks the delicate notes in the sauce. So pepperoni, if you will, if that's your vibe, otherwise keep it more classic. If we're going for what is determining what is a good pizza place versus an okay pizza place, I'm going to have to go for our humble friend, the anchovy. Ooh! You can throw an anchovy on a pizza and call it done, and if it doesn't taste any good, you've not really done service to either the pizza or the anchovy. But a place that can really blend in that nice umami flavor with the rest of your toppings, that's how you know you've got a good pizza place. 
you know what? People don't talk enough about anchovies on pizza, but it is one of the best toppings. It's one of the best ingredients for almost anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. There's a lot of secret anchovies out there, things you wouldn't expect to have an anchovy. Like I've heard it's the tip to it's the key to a good chili. Ooh, see, I use uh, fish sauce. I use fish sauce in my chili, but uh, I imagine mm. an anchovy would would serve a, a similar purpose. That sounds very good. And uh, also speaking on mushrooms, I feel like you can tell the quality of a pizza place is if they use like a canned mushroom versus like a fresh sliced mushroom. Don't I don't want the canned mushrooms. Man, I'm not sure I've ever even had a canned mushroom on pizza. I agree. I think like just a just a plain white mushroom. That's what I'm expecting. And then if we're really somewhere fancy, maybe a porcini, something like that. Wow. Does mushrooms even grow in a can? I thought that was only peaches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of another ingredient that often comes out of a can and is sometimes on pizza, we have come to the most controversial question of the night. Uh, and this is from Wes, who runs the robot Death Punch. He's he's saying he's putting it all out there. He's just going for it. And he wants to know your opinions on pineapple on pizza. Um, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Uh, pineapple is the team's favorite topping. All of us love pineapple. Um, when we're hanging out as a team ordering pizza, we're getting Hawaiian. Um, total pro pineapple stance from the Omega team. We're here. Uh, we like pineapple and, uh, yeah, get over it. I, I have to agree with you. I love pineapple on pizza. And for all those people right now who are like, Oh, how could you, you know what? Just don't order pineapple on your pizza and let us enjoy pineapple on ours. Seems pretty simple. I, I will say to all of those people, uh, I, this is something I started doing in college. Go ahead and just try grilling pineapple. It doesn't seem like it would work, but just getting those char marks and that raised temperature on just thin pineapple slices, it's really an experience unlike any other, and it really elevates the fruit. Me and my uh, my dad, we used to have a, um, a concession stand, and one of the things that we offered was, uh, it, so it was skewered pineapple on, you know, on a stick, and you would roll it in cinnamon and sugar and then grill it until the sugar started to caramelize and it would have almost a little bit of a crunch on the outside. And when you do grill pineapple, you get a variety of other flavors that kind of pop out of it. And it's delicious. It's like almost more savory than you would expect. Mm. It's so good. Yeah. Pineapple on burgers, also delicious. Pineapple goes almost anywhere. Pro pineapple. Pineapple salsa, it's everywhere. Now, would pineapple work in mac and cheese? I, I, I could see it working. Yeah, Hawaiian mac and cheese. Yeah. I'd try it. I won't knock it until I try it. Well, <laughs> this is asking back to um, some other previous questions, but I, I just had a thought on uh, the grand what works with mac and cheese topic. Do you count macaroni salad as mac and cheese? Because technically, you've got the macaroni there, and you can put um, Parmesan into mayonnaise. It's totally legal. You can do it. So is macaroni salad mac and cheese? A mac and cheese to me is originally served hot. Like you can eat mac and cheese cold, but it has to have originally been served as a hot dish. 
So a Greek for that, I will say macaroni salad is not mac and cheese. Yeah, you you can't see me, but I was vigorously shaking my head no because that was such an offensive question. Um, no, mac and cheese must be baked. It it must be cooked. Macaroni salad never baked, never cooked. Well, you've got to cook the pasta at some point, otherwise it's just crunchy and yeah. full of pain. <laughs> we call That's that what pain tastes like. We call that al dente. <laughs> You know, if you make mac and cheese from the box and you just cook your pasta, you put the cheese in, you're still serving that warm or hopefully if you don't forget about it and go to sleep. Um, so I, my, my contention here might be pineapple on mac and cheese, uh, probably with like either spam trying to evoke some spam uh, masumi flavors or trying to evoke other, you know, more more tropical flavors like with hot dogs or something. I know hot dogs are a tropical flavor. Fantastic. Here's cooking with Fred. Um, (laughs) You could probably do pretty good, but I'm thinking that if you did a pineapple and peach, like salsa, that would probably go very good on top of a mac and cheese and also go very well with um, macaroni salad. I would have to try it. I won't knock it till I try it, but uh, I, I would keep an open mind. I do love pineapple. I do love peach. I do love macaroni and cheese. So what do I have to lose? The previous questions are brought to you by Pepto-Bismol. Pepto-Bismol, <laughs> heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea, Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> uh, all right. We have a philosoph- philosophical question from Team Shredded team member Michael Shore, who runs Voxel at NHRL. And this could also be a controversial question. Um, deep dish or pan pizza? What do you prefer? I would prefer a pan pizza because you can still get the crust kind of up the sides and get nice and caramelized on the edge there. Whereas deep dish pizza, I do love all pizza, but to me it skews a little bit more lasagna. Mm. Yeah. Also delicious. Not really a grab and go slice. Yeah. Yeah. Lasagna, a casserole, but not, not like a, a pizza necessarily. I do love both thin and thick crust pizza. I like to have a real crunchy pizza, like a Neapolitan, but when you have like a thick Sicilian and it's all bouncy and chewy, that's also fun. Um, any pizza, anytime, really. Yeah. You, get those happy, you get those happy middle ground style pizzas too, like a, a Greek style pizza or a Detroit style pizza, which is a little bit in between, but still grab and go a bowl. Yeah, I had a St. Louis. I can't believe that somebody else knows about Detroit pizza. That I, I, I thought this a was like now. a secret society. Yeah, I also tried St. Louis pizza when I was there. Um, that was also fun. Have you had Oneonta style pizza? Oh, I was going to get there. Oh, all right. I'll let you take it. As the only person here, here who's maybe had Oneonta style <laughs> pizza, if one of you have had Oneonta style pizza, blow my mind. Oneonta is a, a small uh, town you know, small city, I guess, in the center of New York, uh, where uh, the State University of uh, Oneonta is. And they have um, a pizza style there called Oneonta style pizza. And what they do is you basically get kind of that traditional New York style slice. You get it piping hot, uh, literally like a snapping crust. But before you serve it, you reach into the container of cold mozzarella and you put a heaping handful of cold mozzarella on top of the blistering hot pizza. So when you eat it, 
you get the 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 temperature variation of a nice cold cheese on the roof of your mouth with the saltiness, but then underneath that that kind of ooey gooey and crackly pizza. Actually, I see some utility in this. I've never had it before, but my biggest complaint with pizza is that I burn the roof of my mouth every single time. And this seems like a pretty good way to mitigate that um, by keeping the roof of your mouth safe, but also letting you enjoy that hot, crunchy slice. Um, I'm intrigued. The pizza plates, uh, they actually, in Oneonta, they developed this concept because uh, Oneonta used to be uh, really known for its... um, it's college drinking culture and all the pizza places would have these kids pouring in at like two o'clock in the morning and every single one of them would absolutely obliterate their mouths on <laughs> these pizzas that just came out of the oven because they can't serve them fast enough. So what they ended up starting to do was throwing the cold cheese on top so less college kids uh, were burning the roofs of their mouths and could still come back the next night for more pizza. And, and thus an entire pizza genre was born. You can also get, um, General So's pizza. <laughs> but that's not only after style pizza. I have tried a um like a tikka masala pizza. Ooh. Um I made that at home once. Um just tikka masala sauce and some chicken and like paneer. Um I'm not sure if I would call it a classic pizza, but it was fun and it was tasty. It sounds delicious. I would I would try that. Um we have two last questions here, and they're both from Fallout Builder Matt Lantry. Uh, the first is, is there anything in the pepper grinder you had with you at filming? No, uh, it's actually just, uh, it's, it's, there, you can't really put anything in it. Um, it's just a really cool turned piece of wood from the outside. We had a lot of ambitions with installing an actual pepper grinder into the end of it just to make it semi-functional, but. That's for season two. As with all things, we ran out of time. Yeah. It's improvements to the robot that we have planned for next season. And the last question here, if you had to make a pizza that a robot would want to eat, what would it be? I eat replacement for crust, sauce, cheese, and toppings. What, what's a good uh, pizza for a robot, I guess? All the robots I know eat electrons. They don't really like eating crunchy things like nuts, bolts, and sheet metal. <laughs> So I guess we could get like properly subatomic on like what the structure of an electron is, but I think we've already bored your audience to death with nerd <laughs> already. Nope, sorry. Well, if we were to make a sculpture of a robot and it was going to hold a pizza, um, it would probably be some kind of uh, thin aluminum flashing type material for the crust, a little bit of tap magic for sauce, and... I don't know, maybe some of when we were machining the UHMW, it makes these really, really cool spiral shapes and little fluffy bits. I think that would make a good cheese. Did I ever tell you about machining some of the UHMW logs for uh, pipe professionalism? No, tell me. It was on a lathe and it was like 0.2 inch depth of cut, just something offensive. And I had the tool ground so specifically that it was shooting strings of the plastic three feet up in the air directly over my head into a strategically placed trash can right behind me and i just set up the auto feed and that's all that would happen is i'm just sitting there peeling off this plastic that's just looking like noodles going straight into the trash (laughs) i actually rescued some of the chips that we made um while making little ribroni um they look like little caterpillars, like literally that fluffy kind of caterpillar that 
um, that you find on the sidewalk. Like they're, they're, they're so perfectly round and fluffy. I just, I couldn't throw them out. I, I kept them for no specific reason other than they're kind of cute if you put some eyes on them. <laughs> I love it. You guys, thank you so much for talking with us. Anna and Fred, you are simply the best. We're looking forward to seeing Ripperoni when BattleBots returns on January 5th. And both Ripperoni and Marathon at the World Championship at NHRL later this month. So you will both be competing there. How exciting. Best of luck to both of you. And thank you so, so, so much for your time today. It's It's been a, a true blast. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. We also had a great time. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. Uh, So just a quick content warning here. This one might be kind of intense for young kids or people named Lindsay. Uh, So maybe pause this episode if you have little ones in the car. And I'll give you a warning of uh, three, two, one. All right, uh, let's get into it. This week, uh, we're heading to San Francisco, where the city recently gave police the green light to kill people using robots. You may have heard about it. Uh, Hopefully, this is not the first time, uh, because it is uh, quite the story. Uh, The first such extrajudicial robot killing happened in 2016, when police in Dallas outfitted a robot with a bomb which they used to kill a man suspected of shooting several police officers before being cornered in a parking garage. The vote in San Francisco doesn't decide whether it's legal or ethical for police to kill people using robots. It just decides whether it's possible to use city equipment to do so. So, yeah, this is uh, quite quite the moral quandary, I would say, and also, um, you know, a dystopian, I would uh, also venture to say? Yeah, from a practical, tactical perspective, right? This makes a lot of sense. I get it. I mean, why send in a human to subdue a suspect or take out a suspect uh, when you could send in a robot? But also, like, doesn't that kind of take the humanity out of the whole thing? Um, It it makes it very challenging. It makes it very difficult of a choice to make. Uh, Also, why would we give police drones, you know? Well, because their budgets aren't big enough. <laughs> it's like when they, you know, uh, when they started first issuing tasers to to officers. Now, like, keep it, like, let's look back in time. We'll go back in the way, way back in time machine when, you know, a police officer maybe had a sidearm and maybe some kind of billy stick or, or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, a club, um, you know, as, as you introduce uh, non-lethal, um, uh, alternatives to, you know, more deadly force weapons, uh, they become more and more of a crutch. And now you see that things like, uh, like mace and, uh, and, and tasers are just the go-to in a situation that should be, uh, deescalated using, uh, proper training, proper methodology. And instead now you have like, you know, Karen getting tasered in the face at the Burger King drive-thru line because she was getting irate because they gave her Diet Coke instead of Coke. Um, And, you know, this is like a first step in that direction where, oh, well, we have this new 
means to like protect the lives of officers and for us to enter scenarios that are really different, difficult to you know navigate. But if 15 years, is it going to be the same kind of situation like we've had with the taser where it's just like, oh, you know, this could potentially be dangerous. Let's just send in, you know, killer robot 5000 to go chop his face off. You know, it's it's uh, I hate I hate the slippery slope argument. But when you uh, when whenever you give human beings the opportunity to do things uh, that are easier, they're going to take it. Like 100% of the time, you learn to just hit that button, and this is no different. And I just think that some serious consideration should be uh, put in place for, like, even just the due process that human beings have as a right here in the United States, you know, to, to have your day in court and to be proven guilty and, you know, and then sentenced as opposed to someone making a, a, a judgment call whether or not you've you know, created a situation that's dangerous enough where they're going to use lethal robotics to to take you out. It's also, you know, we've seen countless examples of police officers using deadly force in an instance where they claim that their lives are in danger. And, you know, there's cam footage or other information comes out that shows that no, in fact, there was no justification for use of deadly force. But like, then nothing happens to the police officer. They continue on. Uh, serving. Um, so I just feel like, you know, uh, now I, I imagine it'd be even easier to get away with these types of killings if now you're ordering a robot to do it. <laughs> like the the threshold that you have to prove is, has like decreased. Um, as, I mean, at least that's how I see it. Maybe it will increase in some way, but I feel like history tends to uh, prove that wrong yeah so it just seems like maybe this is now an easier way for people to kill people without due process um and that's troubling yeah uh, yeah i have to agree a thousand percent um i mean there is an argument to be made that maybe there is going to be more accountability with this because uh you know several units kind of have to be called into place to make this happen uh, they have to have video footage. It's not like they can turn off their camera like a police officer could, right? Um, and, you know, anything that potentially saves a police officer's life in a dangerous situation is something that might be worthwhile at looking into or might be worthwhile to use. Uh, but, yeah, the, the I agree with Chris. The slippery slope is not an argument I like to go with, but this certainly does feel like you're uh, you're sliding downhill a little bit with this one. We got to have some kind of joke to end on, right? <laughs> Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we said we were going dark for this robots around the world. So, uh, you know, maybe this one doesn't end with a joke. Maybe this one just ends with uh, robot killer robots. Your San Francisco tree. Oh, jeez. (laughs) Dark. Um, Yeah. Think about it. uh, Reflect on it. You know, we all have a say in these types of things and uh, everyone has a, a right to have their ho- voice heard and, you know, write your, uh, your, your, your local um, uh, representatives, uh, write your state representatives. This is something that if it is uh, it's on your mind, uh, it's good to, to, to speak out about. It's not something that everyone hears about. We hear about it a lot because we're all really tuned into the robotics world. 
but this might be something that other people are not really closely paying attention to or really see through the same lens that we do. So uh, think about it, digest it, uh, and speak your mind. And that's about it for us today. We want to thank Nicole for doing such a great job editing this week's episode. And we'll be back in your feed next week with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Bye. And check out Norwalk, the championships. Well, that's in two weeks. That's fair. (laughs) Well, put it on your calendar. Put it on your calendar. (laughs) Bye.